Father, we thank you once again for this precious day and this precious time of worship and this especially precious time of, once again, uh, being in your word together, all under the authority of your perfect and pure word of truth. We're grateful, God, that we don't only revere the word of God, but it is so that we would revere the God of the word that much more as we hear it, as it convicts our hearts, as it encourages our spirits, and as it causes us to look upon you and to just uh, live our lives uh, all the more, God, for your glory. So thank you for this time now. I pray that we'd be alert, engaged, and vengeance is mine. This is God speaking. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Some of you might be aware that that verse is the sermon text for Jonathan Edwards' uh, most famous message, entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this was a sermon that he preached in Enfield uh, in the year of 1741, in July, and the descriptor to that sermon, uh, the subheading under that was, at a time of great awakenings and attended with remarkable impressions on many of the hearers. And so uh, within the sermon, even though that was kind of the the main text that he was preaching, um, there were other scriptures, obviously, that he went to and referred to. For instance, Psalm 7, verse 11. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Okay? Indignation means anger, okay? wrath. God has anger every day against sin. He's a righteous judge. Another verse is uh, Psalm 73, verses 18 and 19, which he mentions along the way, which says, Surely you, God, set them, unbelievers, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And so, once again, the title of his sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you would allow me, I'm just going to read a few excerpts from this epic sermon. Okay? Just a a few, so you get a taste of it. I don't know if anyone has heard it or or read it. Um, But here's just a, a few excerpts from this sermon and this is from the second half which the whole second half is application as he puts it okay it's like you know it's longer than the first half but anyway quote the use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation and this is why he preached it this that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of christ that don't know christ That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. I want you all to listen to this carefully. He goes on, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, unbeliever, 
much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Okay, a little bit more. He says, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And let me just give you the last very last lines here. There's like three more lines. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. These are intensely serious warnings about the wrath that God has against all sin and against all sinners. This is reality and truth from God's word. And the Lord Jesus was about to receive what all of us sinful wretches deserved to receive. The awful, horrific, yet just wages of our sins and trespasses trespasses against God. That is what Jonathan Edwards was describing in this sermon, how unbelievers are but sinners in the hands of an angry God. Today, in our text in Mark chapter 14, we see the reverse of that. And we see instead God in the hands of angry sinners. God in the hands of angry sinners. That's the sermon title today. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, truly God and truly man, he is being tried in the human court of sinfully angry men. And ultimately, we know this is God's will. This was the Father's will, of which Jesus was in complete conformity with. But in the ultimate sense, this was God's plan and purpose and sovereign will. But just as true is the way that he carries out his plan and his purpose and his sovereign will. It is through the hands of wicked, self-righteous, hateful men. Acts 2.23 is Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost there, his first sermon. Acts 2, verse 23, he says, This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
So let's turn to Mark chapter 14 as we continue in this wonderful gospel. Our text is verses 53 to 65. And our theme, which is in your bulletin there, along with the outline, is that the truth of who Jesus is will cause sinners to either hate him to death or repent and follow him to eternal life. So I'm going to read Mark 14, and again, our our passage this morning is verses 53 to 65. And if you are able, please join me as we honor God's word and stand. Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. This is the word of God. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up, and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Please be seated. So the first couple of verses kind of set the scene before we get into our outline points. And I want to give a brief explanation here about that. As we saw last week, Jesus has been arrested. He's taken away. He's now on trial. Note that there were actually six trials that Jesus went through during this wee early hours of the morning before his crucifixion at 9 o'clock in the morning. So with those trials, there were two phases. The first phase was with the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, the council, the supreme court of Israel. These were the... 71 members led by the high priest of the Sanhedrin. And the second phase was before the secular authorities, the Roman government represented by Pontius Pilate, right, the governor. So each of those two phases had three parts. So thus you could say that there were six trials in a sense. And we'll get to the other, other ones in Mark chapter 15 in a couple Sundays. But here in Mark 14, he's being tried by the religious authorities. 
They've arrested him. He's before the high priest now. And first he was actually taken to Annas, who was the former high priest. And that's in Matthew 26 and John 18. So that was the first one. But Jesus is now sent to the current high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. That's in John 18, 24. Okay, Mark doesn't give the name, but this is our passage now in Mark 14, the second trial out of six. And Mark mentions here in verse 54 that Peter had followed him at a distance. As we continue to set the scene here, after Peter and the other disciples fled in just cowardly fear, as we saw last week again, Peter did not want to be seen. But, you know, he doesn't want to miss seeing either, right? So he's following along, but at a distance, a safe distance. You might say he's not truly following here, but... He's more like trailing along behind. And uh, John 18, which is another parallel passage in the Gospels, says that John himself, the Apostle John, was there as well. So he goes right into the courtyard of the high priest. And while he's there, Jesus is in the courtroom. This is the location where the trials took place. He was sitting with the officers, warming himself at the fire. The officers are the servants Uh, which gives some indication that with the officers, the servants, they were on the outside looking in. And it would have been cold at that time, the wee hours of the morning now. And so there's a fire provided for warmth. So Peter did care. He did care about what was happening to Jesus. And yet his courage had deserted him. And we're going to see more of that next week in his denials. But right now he's watching this scene unfold. And surely he would have noticed that this is all wrong. All of this is wrong. None of what is happening right now is right. None of it is according to God's law given in the scriptures. It's violating God's law, Mosaic law, left and right. It's happening in private. It's at night. It's away from the temple. It's just hours before the Passover. All of these things are wrong. They're not according to scripture. And we're going to see that there's no credible witnesses. There's no opportunity for a proper defense. There's an illegitimate verdict pronounced on him with execution to follow the same day, not just a few, several hours uh, ahead. And there's there's supposed to be more time than that. All of this is unbiblical and wrong. None of it was legal or just or righteous. rather, Rather, it was Jesus who is incarnate God, in the hands of angry sinners. So this leads us to the rest of our current passage here. And once again, the truth of who Jesus is will cause sinners to either hate him to death or to repent and follow him to eternal life. So our first point on the outline here is the false accusations The false accusations, verses 55 to 59. And verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were not finding any. For many were giving false testimonies against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Matthew 26, 57 says similarly, but parallel passage, 26, 57 of Matthew. Now the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, right? They kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. 
Okay, this trial number two, where the, uh, a formal arraignment of officially bringing a charge was supposed to be happening, um, the Sanhedrin keeps trying to obtain testimony against him. They're just looking for anything against him. They were not finding anything. They made multiple attempts. They okay, kept trying. Trying to get incriminating evidence against Christ without any success. And clearly they want it, right? They, they, they keep going after it. Um, he needed to be guilty of something. They were out for his blood. They were going to get some testimony to accomplish that. And there were many who were coming forward. He apparently invited by the Sanhedrin. There was no lack of witnesses here. Lots of people came. But what they testified was false. He basically lies. Um, false accusations. We might call them half-truths. Their stories did not line up with each other. Mark writes they were not consistent. And you might know, according to the Bible, the Old Testament, Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it was on the evidence of two or three witnesses that a matter or a charge must be confirmed. This was the way God instituted justice to be served in the land of Israel. But in this case... Even among those who stood up and began to give false testimony against him, they were not consistent with each other. To quote one pastor, R.A. Cole, he says, It is harder to agree on a consistent lie than to tell the simple truth. End quote. So Mark continues, and this is right along the lines of uh, what Matthew says in uh, Matthew 26. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Matthew says, many false witnesses came forward. Later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That was the gist of these false charges in this mock trial. And as with many lies, there was a, a, a kernel of truth, a hint, a smattering of truth to what they said. But do you remember what Jesus actually said? Anybody remember? In John chapter 2, after his first temple cleansing, which was in the beginning of his ministry, the Jewish leaders asked him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Because they were angry, right? And John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But then, verse 20, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But, verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body, speaking of his death and his resurrection. So now it's three years later, and they're completely twisting and misconstruing Jesus' words, trying to make it seem like he was threatening to destroy the temple. Again, this was supposed to be a a court of law. It's in the presence of the high priest, people who are looked up to, who are the religious leaders of the Jews, supposed to be committed to truth and righteousness. Instead, we find lies, falsehoods, and injustice being served. So I want to give us a a couple implications and applications here. 
before we go on to the next point. And the first is to our unbelieving friends who, are, who may be here today or who may be listening online. And maybe particularly if you are um, angry or unbelieving and you're, you're just um, in that state right now, I just need to tell you, be careful of what you accuse God of being. And be careful of what you accuse Jesus of saying. And be very careful of that. Um, some who are struggling in dealing with some of the hardships of life, uh, and by the way, there are some tragic, difficult things that happen to people. Uh, I'm not denying that in any way whatsoever. But in struggling to deal with some of those things, uh, there are some unbelievers who accuse God of all sorts of things. Hey, like God making them jump through hoops to earn his blessings. Okay, so hard things come. They don't get what they wanted, whether it has to do with their health or job or money or apartment or house or whatever. And their conclusion is, well, here's God again making me go through another ordeal or disappointment. Okay, and, and saying things like God is like a, like a kid with an ant farm. Okay, trying to say kids will you know, shake up and destroy and displace everything that the ants spent so much time to build. And that's what God does to us in life. Okay, so people who are in that unbelieving, angry state, um, forget about Christianity. Forget all this stuff about faith and prayer and serving others because there's no payoff. There's no payoff except another disaster or another hoop to jump through. Okay, they, they say, I don't want to worship any God who gets off on messing up people's lives for sport. Hey, to you, I say, be very careful of what you accuse God of being and what you accuse Jesus of saying. Because that is a, a mis, misunderstanding and misconstruing of the character of God. Okay, so this would be a, a modern example of God in the hands of angry sinners. False accusations against God based on a false understanding of who he is and of who we are as sinful people. It's putting words in God's mouth and twisting them to fit their anger and their struggles with difficulties. Be careful of falsely, falsely accusing God. To believers, um, those of us who know Christ, a couple phrases kind of jumped out at me that, that are repeated in this, these few verses. A false testimony, twice, and their testimony was not consistent twice. Um, so just an important reminder, okay, and I think this is uh, worthy. Uh, lies do not become the people of God. Okay, these Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they were claiming to, to know God. But falsehoods are not fitting for Christians. Okay, honesty is not only the best policy. Uh, it's God's biblical instruction and command to us. For those who struggle with this, when you don't tell the truth from the beginning, what happens is you have to keep covering and backtracking until something seems consistent or makes sense. Okay, so dear Christians, we must be careful to be honest and truthful in our daily life. If you're habitually dishonest, you risk breaking trust with people around you. Your family, your friends, your church family, your boss, 
your teachers at school, your coworkers, etc. Hey, over time, your credibility becomes damaged. Your word becomes doubted rather than trusted. So as Christians, um, we don't want to do damage to the character of ourselves, much less do damage to the character of Christ and to the gospel itself. So a loving reminder of Proverbs 12, 28, right? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. And as we cultivate that that heart of integrity and honesty, that's what's going to come out in our words, and his joy becomes our joy. His joy in us becomes our joy in him. And so that's what we're called to, fellow believers. All right, so moving on to the next point here. As Jesus is falsely, falsely accused, how does he respond? How does he respond in verses 60 to 62? Well, he's, he responds with the truth, the truth spoken. And in verse 60, the line of questioning by the high priest Caiaphas here is interesting, right? He comes forward and he says, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? He starts asking him, why aren't you saying anything? Right? Are you going to destroy the temple? Or are you a terrorist? Are you going to you know, make a bomb explode in there? Did you make these threats? Don't you know these are serious accusations? But first, Jesus keeps silent. Okay? No need to speak when you know and they know that the charges are false. But upon his silence, Caiaphas, the high priest, starts up again. Now he's quite direct and more to the point, trying to get something out of him, some answer out of him. Directly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And we know that the Christ means Messiah. Are you the Messiah? He follows that up with this title, the Son of the Blessed One. And in typical Jewish fashion, Blessed One is used for God. And it's another term for God. That's what it means. So clearly he's asking if Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew 26, verse 63, helps us with that. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's a clearly known title of deity. And the Son of God means that someone is claiming to have equal standing and position and power as God the Father. And so with that, Jesus does speak. The truth is coming out once again. Verse 62, Jesus said, Ego eimi, I am, I am. A clear instance of Jesus affirming his identity with the divine name, Yahweh. He said this earlier when he was walking on water in Mark 6, verse 50, to his disciples. Hey, it is I, Ego eimi, I am, don't worry. Don't be troubled. Yahweh is here. And what follows that is Jesus' promise, his prediction even of a future day as he refers to the scriptures. He says, yes, I am Messiah, the Son of God, and you will see me again. And so he's alluding to some Old Testament scriptures, right? The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a psalm of David. It says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is 
Father speaking to the Son. And then in Daniel 7.13, Jesus says, And coming, you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, Daniel 7.13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Son of man, that too, along with son of God, a title of deity, title of godhood. So Jesus punctuates his affirmative answer to the high priest with that crystal clear claim of who he actually is. The son of God, the son of man, it's unmistakable. The one who has the authority and power of God himself. The one who will be coming from that position of judgment from heaven. And he says that they're going to see him coming. So first he's going up and then He's coming back down. Well, these words of Jesus are one of three things, aren't they? They're either true and right, or he is lying to the high priest here in this court of law, and to us, and to everyone, or he's being a lunatic with some egomaniacal God complex. See, those are our only choices when we come to texts like these, faced with Jesus' own words. Okay, any of you who are questioning or wondering who Jesus is, whether you're here in this worship center today or listening online, he's either a deceiver, like a demon from hell, who lies and fools people into thinking he's something he's not, or he's a deranged person who is not God, but has deluded himself and thinks he is and tries to convince others of his identif- identity. Right? Today, they would say, he, well, he identifies as Yahweh. Right? Or he is telling the truth about his deity. Okay? And this is the, we're helped from C.S. Lewis, right? Who, who brought forth this argument. So the gospel truth is that he is the incarnate God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is the only Messiah, Savior of sinners. He's the only mediator between holy God and sinful man. He's the Lord of all, who is the great high priest of Caiaphas and Annas and all the previous high priests and all the chief priests who are there and all the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's already told the disciples, if you recall Mark chapter 13, all of that discourse, speaking of the end times, He said in those days, after that tribulation, right? Remember that seven-year tribulation period? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So once again, we are caused to pause here and think about what Jesus is saying. He's somebody that needs to be reckoned with. You have to come to terms with who Jesus said he was. Who is able to make such statements that he has equal power with God? He has the right to to take the throne of heaven and sit on that judgment seat. And that he will be returning someday in majesty and dominion and glory. This is not earthly. This is supernatural, divine, transcendent. And he's coming presumably for judgment. He has the right to judge the world. He has the right to judge every single person. And listen, this is what makes sinful people angry. 
Okay? For Jesus to say that God loves everyone, God so loved the world, and that he himself is a loving Savior, and he wants to help you, if only you'd let him, and he wants you to be successful in life, and he wants you to have a good life, and he wants you to love others and serve others and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Everyone is fine with all of that. Everyone loves that. But when he makes himself to be equal with God, having the authority and power to judge them, to tell them that they're wrong about life and eternal life and heaven and hell, and to call them to repentance, otherwise they're going to face hell and wrath from God for their sins. Okay, people back then and people today become furious at this truth. And they hate him to death. They hate him to death. And that might be some person in here today or somebody listening on the live stream. And let me tell you, that was me back before God broke my heart and opened my mind to who Jesus Christ was and is. So Jesus speaks the truth here, nothing but the truth from heaven, from God, in the spirit of truth, He answers the council, the Sanhedrin, with that truth of his identity. He is the Son of God, the Blessed One, the Messiah. So those truth bombs lead to our last point here, verses 63 to 65, the hateful reaction. The hateful reaction. Verse 63, tearing his clothes... The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? That tearing of clothes was a sign of extreme displeasure or outrage. Specific reaction of the high priest uh, upon hearing someone utter blasphemy. And whether Caiaphas was genuinely offended or not, he jumps at the opportunity to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. This profaning and defiant irreverence of God. That's what he was looking for. No more witnesses needed. He says they all have heard the blasphemy. And he regarded the words as such because Jesus claimed the position and power of deity. Right? The audacity to equate himself with God. And it was so serious that Old Testament law, actual biblical law, commanded death for such blasphemy. And all the others in the council agreed with him. They all condemned him to be deserving of death. So we shouldn't miss the irony there. They all condemned him. They were the ones who should have been condemned. And um, we should also notice that there was no formal orderly vote taken here, which was the proper, normal way to go about things. This was more of a mob mentality, all just following Caiaphas' lead and Conclusion, obviously all of this was born of extreme malice and anger towards Jesus. It was, it was not holiness. It was hypocrisy. It was hatred for the truth that caused this reaction, this cursing, condemning of Jesus to death. It came from minds that were dark and depraved and even devilish. And uh, if you want, you can turn to John chapter 3 with me for a moment. John chapter 3 describes people like this. And this is after our favorite John 3.16. But verse 18 says, 
He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And I wanted to bring to your attention another passage from John's Gospel, chapter 8. John chapter 8, when you think about the depravity and darkness of men's hearts. Um, John chapter 8, and this is where the Pharisees and Jews who had believed him, some of the Jews who had believed him, verse 31, they accuse him of having a demon as this conversation goes forth. And uh, pick it up in John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And why do you not understand what I am saying? Jesus answered it. It's because you cannot hear my word. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, he says, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth... Why do you not believe me? Last verse, 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So this would apply to the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, back in Mark chapter 14. If you recall in John chapter 8, the end of that discussion, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, he says the same words, ego emi, I am claiming, again, to be Yahweh, claiming to be God. What happens in the next verse, John eight fifty nine? They pick up stones, try to kill him. Murderous, dark, depraved, evil hatred because he's speaking the truth. So back to Mark 14. All these guys, all these men, they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Okay? And again, the Son of Man, who is the Almighty Judge, the one who has the right to condemn all sin is being judged and condemned by sinners who are the ones who actually deserve that condemnation. And verse 65 is it's even hard to read, hard to just fathom, but the expression of their, their dark, depraved hearts. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists. Say to him, prophesy. Hey, what's supposed to be this lofty, supreme court of Israel, the highest, most powerful court of justice, hey, it de- descends into this disgraceful chaos, shameful abuse of Jesus. Their hatred towards the truth, this hateful heart towards the truth, causes them to unleash their wrath at him. And they become like demented children. And they spit at him, which is like the worst insult in Jewish culture. It's the ultimate expression of contempt. 
And the Old Testament even talks about that. I won't get into it. But blindfolding him, why? So they can mock him when they buffet him and beat him with their clenched fists and then ask him to prophesy, tell us which one of us did that. And then the officers, they follow suit. They're following these, these religious men who are pouring out this, this abuse on Jesus. They follow suit with slaps in the face. A more insult to injury. And, uh, you know, this does fulfill what Jesus told his disciples earlier, doesn't it? Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he tells them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. That's exactly what is happening. And so, as we conclude here, there's, there's much irony, as I mentioned just a bit ago. Sinful, angry men who condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. They were the ones condemned deserving of death and deserving God's wrath and anger. They are deserving of condemnation because they've rejected the truth of who Jesus is. I think we should be aware today that many sinful men say a lot of things about who Jesus is, and this includes even supposed religious people, even supposed spiritual people, even so-called Christian people, even so-called Christian scholars, Whoever they are, whatever they say, however many books or articles or essays they've written or published, if they say anything less than what Jesus said about himself, they stand with the, the Sanhedrin here. They stand with the high priest who condemn themselves because they deny the truth. They deny the deity of Christ and therefore they deny the gospel because the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. James Edwards, not Jonathan, James Edwards says, Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin will stand on trial before the Son of Man when he returns in glory. End quote. And this is true for everyone who rejects Jesus Christ, who doesn't believe in him, who denies the reality and truth of who he is. He might be on trial right now in your mind and in your life, and you're standing in judgment of him today. But when the time comes, the day of reckoning is coming, and you are going to be judged by him. The roles will be reversed as it should be. And so with that, I want to call anyone who doesn't know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior this morning, this moment, to come to him and submit. Submit your life and your heart, your convictions, your belief about everything to him because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the way. He is the truth, and he is the life. He's the only way to heaven. And I'm going to wrap it up right here. Okay, this reminds us. I, I started off the sermon with, quoting Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's true. But look, 
I hope we're reminded that even towards sinners, even towards angry, sinful, prideful, wicked, wretched men and women who are condemning him to death, even death on a cross, the one they are crucifying has the authority to forgive. He has the authority not only to judge and condemn, but to forgive sinners. And later that very day on, this, on, a, on, a, on a cross, Jesus is going to call out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is his mercy and compassion towards sinful people. And so I want to close with this verse, 1 Peter 2, verse 23 and 24. It says, And while being reviled, he, Jesus, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. May we all savor the Savior of our souls and all follow him. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you that you give us the unvarnished truth in your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us enough to tell us directly who you are and all that you've done on our behalf so that we can escape the judgment that we deserve and live to righteousness, live to eternal life. We praise you, God, for the grace and mercy and compassion you have even towards sinners. Sinners like these self-righteous men. And we, we will look ahead and see that uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, believed being one of them. But we're grateful, God, for just this overwhelming and amazing grace that you've given to us. And I pray that we would not take it for granted, but truly bow down, submit to you, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.